Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Hello and welcome to Where to Go, your personal guide to the world's best travel destinations. I'm James Atkinson, online brand manager, and back from an episode off, we're today joined by DKL Witness Senior Editor, Lucy Richards. Hello, it's very nice to be back in front of the mic. Yeah, you had one episode off, Lucy. It's great! (laughs) (laughs) And today's episode celebrates the release of a book very close to Lucy's heart, the new release from DKL Witness, USA National Parks, Lands of Wonder. Yeah, um, I'm really excited. This is so nice to be back talking about one of my uh, my projects. Yeah, so you um, edited this book a bit earlier this year, Lucy. Um, correct. So the book starts with telling the stories of sort of, much like this podcast, the past, present and future of the National Parks and the National Park mm-hmm. Service. Um, and then we sort of then track all of the parks themselves from when they were established. So beginning with Yellowstone in, in um, 1872, and then all the way to the most recent uh, uh, sort of established national parks, which was White Sands in 2019. And, and it's sort of a, it's a celebration of, of the stories of all the past, mm-hmm. the landscape of today, and also kind of looking to the future and protecting these lands of wonder for future generations to enjoy. Because ultimately, these parks are the American peoples. They belong mm. to American peoples. It's their back garden. And it's kind of a celebration of, of those amazing landscapes and the stories that they have to tell. Fantastic. Uh, well, it's a beautiful book. I've actually got it in front of me right now, and uh, yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it's truly stunning. It's uh, it's really you know from the from design to all of the information about every single park to lots of the storytelling, as you've mentioned. I think it's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah you're, you're it, absolutely right in it being a celebration of the parks. So. Yeah, and it was it was from an editor's point of view, it was actually really great to work on a book that sort of had more about the history and the culture of a very specific set of landscapes as well. Like that was, um, and we've got one of the writers who worked on that front section and another writer who, who worked on the sort of the narrative of the, um, the parks themselves. But it was just actually from Ed's point of view, it was fascinating to learn so much about these often untold stories mm. of people who, as I say, kind of contributed to that landscape. So it was it was a really rewarding project. Fantastic. Well, to talk, as Lucy kind of hinted at there, uh, to talk all things national parks with us, 
we have two very special guests today. Our first guest yeah. being James Edward Mills, a freelance journalist who specializes in environmental conservation and outdoor recreation uh, with a particular interest in diversity and inclusion. Um, yep. And then we've also got Stephanie Payne, who is a communications strategist at NASA, which is really cool by day. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Steph isn't telling the story of exploration in space, she writes about exploration right here on planet Earth. Um, and in 2016, she road trip to every U.S. national park to document America's treasured lands, which is uh, really cool. That's so cool. Well, without further ado, uh, let's welcome James and Stephanie. Hello, guys. Hello. Hi, James. Hey. Nice to speak to you guys. And uh, today we're going to be exploring the past, present and future of America's national parks, understanding the legacy and heritage of the parks as they approach their 150th anniversary how the parks have been affected by events of 2020 so far and how the parks may look in the future. So it's brilliant to have you guys join us and without further ado, we're going to get going. So we're going to start with looking at the parks before the events of 2020 and in particular, both James and Stephanie's personal relationship with them. So um, starting with you, James, um, why the national parks? Like, how did you start to write about them? Well, I think it really all began because I'm a lifelong lover of national parks. I've been going to national parks in one capacity or another for you know, my entire um, growing up, my adult life, but also through my professional life as a a person who had originally started his career in sales and marketing, working with um, outdoor recreation companies. I decided that I wanted to devote more of my time to writing stories about my personal experience in the National Park, but also with an understanding of the stories that we don't always hear when it comes to the National Parks. Mm -hmm. There are quite a few narratives that I even having grown up in the national parks, had never heard before. And yeah. many of them revolve around the narratives about people of color you know, and, yeah. and African-American, Native American, Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans. I mean, a, a wide number of people, frankly, have been overlooked you know, when it comes to the stories that we tell about the history, heritage, and legacy of our national parks. And much of my work now is devoted to telling those stories in a meaningful way. Yeah. Yeah, and that kind of comes across in the book. I mean, in in the book we've got on uh, USA National Parks, we've got an unsung heroes kind of spread that I know you and Lucy worked on together um, about, and and that's um, you know, is it's something? Is it something that's kind of been missing from history before? Is it something that's only really been a recent study? Or, well, I would say that it's a recent conversation. I mean, it's been studied for a very long time. It's just that mm. we haven't been talking about it. You know, when you take a look, especially when the National Parks America's Best Idea documentary by Ken Burns came out in uh, 2009, I think that was where I personally started delving my my professional interest in these stories. Because it was then that in a conversation that, that Ken Burns and I had in an interview, he tells me the story of the Buffalo Soldiers. African-American members of the U.S. Cavalry who were charged with protecting and preserving the natural areas around um, Sequoia and Yosemite National Parks. I grew up in California. I work in the outdoor industry for my entire professional career. And in the late 40s of my life, I'm hearing this story for the very first time. And so if I'm hearing this story for the first time as a person of color, that means that millions of people probably haven't heard these stories either. 
So I really felt that it was important that we start talking about these stories that have been recorded, but really haven't been shared or told. Yeah, actually, as a side note, James, can I see Captain Charles Young on the wall behind you? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I know I recognized him. Yes. Um, That's cool. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that it's really important that we recognize the historical figures in yeah. our lives and in our careers. And Charles Young is definitely one of my heroes. Do you think that then the perspectives in relation to the U.S. National Park's history is starting to shift a bit more, more than it has since 2009 even? Uh, I think so. I think because uh, part of it is the rise of social media. I mean, you're yeah. seeing a lot of fabulous affinity groups being created where you are seeing African-Americans and other people of color showing themselves in national parks in the way that books and magazines, popular films haven't mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. past. You know, so social media, I think, has democratized the storytelling around our national parks. And now that we are mm-hmm. seeing more people see themselves, they're reflecting their observation by having experiences of their own. And through my writing and through the writing of many of my colleagues, you know, right up into and including, you know, the fact that there's an African-American woman on the cover of Outside Magazine this month, you know, which hasn't happened since an article that I wrote in 2018. And, And prior to that, it hadn't happened for many, many years before. So we are indeed starting to see a slow percolation of more images, more stories, more representation, more visitation. And long term, I'm hoping more support and engagement when it comes to who we see not only in the parks, but also Mm -hmm. working to protect them long term. Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, uh, I guess kind of going, uh, we'll we'll discuss a little bit about how um, kind of we're seeing, well, the future of the parks and how more people can kind of get involved with them uh, a little bit later in the episode. But in terms of kind of what makes the, you know, going all the way back to your childhood and and what makes the national parks so special and unique, especially, uh, you know, give uh, think of someone like me, like a Brit who doesn't, has never been to a US national park and knows nothing about them. How would you kind of describe them to an outsider? Well, you know, it's really remarkable because, you know, North America is a place where we have these monumental geological and naturally occurring phenomena. You know, the Grand Canyon, the walls of Yosemite, you have, you know, the uh, the great sequoias and the redwoods, you have I mean, you have all these amazing things that are are just part of the natural landscape. You know, that I think in, in, in other societies, you know, I think that this would be our monumental architecture. You know, I mean, in, mm. in, uh, in Europe, you've got the Parthenon and you've got, you know, these amazing monuments of human culture. But these are monuments of, of the natural world, you know, and, and I think America is just so amazing when it comes to those things. You know, in fact, um, you know, very early on when they started um, first talking about these places, you know, major news organizations didn't even believe that these places existed. You know, I think it was, um, you know, the New York Times who claimed when, you know, John Muir started talking about the um, the amazing features in Yellowstone. You know, they told him that they didn't publish fiction. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's really, you know, it, I mean, these, really these areas were just so amazing that people quite literally did not believe that they existed. You know, and so I think a big part of it is you know, being able to take yeah. the idea of America as it as it pertains to democracy, 
um, and um, a nation that was originally founded, um, you know, for the uh, equality of everyone. The great thing about our national parks is that it is the, it, they are by design and by you know, their own declaration of their purpose to be used for the pleasure of the people, mm. you know, and mm. so that our mm. national parks are basically in principle <laughs> designed to be places where, um, where as Americans, as even visitors to America, you can have free and open access to our public land. Now, unfortunately, through mm. um, a, a wide variety of different disparities that were, that are still unfolding today, those promises weren't always kept. You know, if you take a look at the Jim Crow era, the 1930s and 60s, where mm-hmm. it was quite literally illegal for myself as a person of color to camp or even visit in some of the national parks that I visit today. You know, and it's really not until the latter part of the 20th century that we see an opening of our national parks that they are indeed available and open to everyone. And then you, know, you take a look at the the custom of how people of color in this country are treated in public space. You know, we literally are in a, in a place right now where we have to fight to make sure that people are made to feel safe and welcome in our, our wild and scenic places. And in order to do that, that means telling an interpretive story that is indeed inclusive. So we tell the long history and legacy of early protection of our national parks. And we fast forward that to the 21st century where now we are talking about the places where people will actually mm-hmm. be able to exercise their rights as American citizens, they exercise their rights as human beings, as non-citizens, just visiting our national parks. I think that's really where we're at today, how we can ultimately make our national parks more open and accessible mm-hmm. to everyone. So that kind of philosophy that sat behind the, sits behind the initial idea of national parks is almost really kind of only coming true now is only like really... Um, and Stephanie, you kind of, um, in 2016, you took on this mammoth journey to visit every national park. Is that right? And, um, which is quite a feat given, I mean, there's been more added now, right? I think there's another three or four since then, but. There have been three added since we completed that project in 2016. And have you managed to visit those ones as well since have, have you kept up your record? So um, it's actually a really interesting segue to what James was just talking about. Um, So Gateway Arch, which has a very Mm. interesting history in our country, um, kind of related to some of what James was talking about. That was uh, the first that was established after the centennial anniversary, which was in 2016. Um, Mm -hmm. And then after that came Indiana Sand Dunes. And we did make a pilgrimage there and did a full park treatment, as we call it, on that park. So we went to, you know, all the places we thought are the most accessible. We tried to do a big adventure. We um, photographed everything. We hit sunrise, sunset. And this is is something we really did during our year in the parks was, and uh, the ultimate goal of the project was to give as much, I don't want to say exposure, but as much um, acknowledgement to the small parks that you never hear about and yes. don't know exist, mm. like yes. Hot Springs uh, in Arkansas and Congaree in South Carolina. And there are just so many wonderful parks that no one's ever heard about. And we really just wanted to um, give them some time in the sun yeah. during during the centennial year. So we did 
take that approach to Indiana sand dunes. And then White Sands was uh, the most recently established. Mm. And we haven't had a chance to go there yet, but I just found out that I get to go there for work. So that's sometime oh, upcoming. But yeah, I imagine that's for the really re- convenient. Was that yeah. was that a special project that you just decided to put yourself? Hey, on I did. They put me on it. It <laughs> oh, was just fortuitous. Um, Amazing. DK, but, uh, they need to send us to some of these parts. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but I think for the rest of my life, it's going to be a thing where if there's a new park established, I'm going to go to it and I'm going to photograph it and I'm going to explore it and just try to understand it. Yeah. So then for you, Stephanie, what makes the US parks just so special? Because after all, there's a there's an entire federal agency dedicated to their preservation. What, what, what is it for you that is just so incredible about them? I mean, there are so many facets to them that I could answer that in a hundred different ways. But I think ultimately it's their diversity and by learning them and their history and the special people who really the the people in the beginning of like before these places were established, there was a champion. There was someone fighting for restoration, you know, fighting for ecology or for humanity like Mm. a culture a a people and and uh, every park has some different champion from its past that brought it to awareness and um, I think as I started writing about all of these parks in detail and learning fun facts about them and a historical timeline um, I really just started to understand that People devoted their entire heart and soul to each of these places and not one mm. person, but many, many people. And over a long span of time, I mean, we're talking mm. hundreds and hundreds of years ago, Native Americans in our country were living on these lands. And when you really just look at the history of the parks, you realize that it's it's so much bigger than mm. Sequoia having the biggest trees or you know, Yosemite really being that beautiful because it is, but, and it's more than John Muir, you know, and, and Mm. yeah. So James mentioned, uh, Ken Burns documentary series, and I devoured that on the road and it really just gave me a, a real thirst for understanding the depth of these places. Mm. And, you know, we see them be becoming so popular with the rise of social media Get that Instagram mm. shot, you know, make it pretty. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's all fine and good. What I think that my hope is, and what it sounds like James' work entails as well, is getting people to care about it in a, a deeper way. And yeah. COVID's been fascinating because this is one portfolio of places in our country that everyone has right now. And that mm. is remarkable. And my mm-hmm. wish is that people understand how lucky they are and how many people fought for that so that they mm-hmm. can have it. So I feel very passionate about that. Well, it's so lovely to hear both of you talk so passionately about it. I mean, it, it makes me want to to read it more and it makes me want to visit those smaller parks, as you say, and not just go to the big giants, but to explore some of the smaller places to really kind of preserve those lands. Mm. I just wanted to mention that like sometimes when you're sitting in like any of these places, you'll see something that will just knock your head off and take words from your mouth and like make your heart burst. It's just 
you can have really significant moments in your life in these parks. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I think that, and you kind of touched on earlier about the diversity of the parks and the fact that, you know, actually kind of flicking through the book and, I mean, I'm probably not alone in being the only person who, like, had, didn't even realise there was 62 of the <laughs> actual actual national parks and, like, just the, the sheer, you know, from Alaska to Florida, you've got, like incredible sort of diversity from like kind of lots of like snow plains to forests to deserts to um american to... samoa south of the equator <laughs> yeah, yeah of course yeah. yeah yeah of course and uh is there another one that's not on mainland america as well uh, virgin islands national park virgin islands national park as well yeah so you've got just so much in there that it's kind of you know it's bands across the globe in a way and then two in hawaii right. as well that's what i was mm-hmm. gonna say yeah of hawaii. course of course yes. yeah it's uh it's really kind of exciting to hear about them i had no idea at all so. come on over yeah we'll, take no, we'll totally take you yeah absolutely oh that would be amazing <laughs> right. right well after this we're booking it a date. Sure. well it's it is it is remarkable and and um stephanie pointed out that you know these smaller, obscure parks that you don't even realize are even there. I mean, uh, yeah. during mm-hmm. COVID, I had a, I took a sailing trip to the Apostle Islands National Seashore, mm-hmm. which is in the state of Wisconsin. I I'd never visited there before. <laughs> you know, I've lived mm-hmm. in the state for twenty years, and this is the first time I've actually been on one of the islands. And yeah. you know, you have to make a concerted effort to get there. But once you do, you know, you realize that you know, as Stephanie said, that that people devote their lives to their protection and preservation, you know, and I think the very least that we can do is support them in that effort and try to figure out what we can do long-term to make sure that they're not only protected, but made accessible for more people. Because, you know, like, for example, one of the the things that that people probably don't realize about the Grand Canyon is that, you know, 4.5 million people visit the Canyon Rim every year. But only 29,000 people are allowed to make the river trip from one end of the Grand Canyon to the other. You know, and so it's probably one of the most exclusive travel opportunities in the world, you know, relative to the number of people who could visit the area. And so you kind of have to stop and ask yourself, you know, why is 29,000 people the limit? Well, that's the maximum carrying capacity that human impact can be allowed in that ecosystem before it starts to become permanently impacted. You know, Mm. and so sadly, that means that, you know, we literally can only make this trip or do these visits by lottery, you know, and Mm. um, I myself. I get it every month. (laughs) I'm now in the annual lottery so I can take my next trip. (laughs) Um, you know, and it's really only been, I mean, it literally took me 10 years, you know, to, um, and, and, and just so happened it was in 2016, you know, and so I was actually able to spend the centennial summer in the Grand Canyon making that trip, you know, and, but again, it's incredibly, incredibly exclusive. And so the question then, Mm -hmm. how do we make sure that those opportunities aren't just available to the wealthy, you know, because I mean, I can spend Mm. five to $8,000 and get uh, on a on a commercial trip down the Grand Canyon, but who has five or eight thousand dollars to spend on a vacation? Not as many people as you would think. Yeah. And so the question then becomes, you know, how do we maximize those experiences? And the best way I, I can imagine is by storytelling. You know, I, and I'm mm-hmm. dying to read Stephanie's book now. You know, <laughs> and I definitely want to encourage people to read 
Lands of Wonder, um, because it is a an open gateway into what these parks have to offer. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, yeah, I guess as you were kind of saying, I think there's a there's a kind of uh, difficulty between you know m- maximizing these parks for everyone versus actually trying to protect them and kind of keeping uh you know keeping them safe from you know over tourism which could happen and can actually destroy the kind of mm. natural wonders that kind of fall inside so um i was just gonna say and also keeping travelers safe from themselves right. um mm. i think is a really important thing you know there's protection of the landscape um but you know like the grand canyon colorado river is a great example it's dangerous mm. place to go travel. Mm-hmm. And so there's some self-selection that occurs, you know, with these kinds of harder adventures or bigger adventures in the park. And I think just safety is an aspect I want to feed into the conversation somehow, but no, just a quick, I could not possibly agree more. I, I don't know if you've ever made the trip to the top of half dome in Yosemite, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's an, it's, it is an accessible <laughs> yeah. hike. Um, it's steep and it's, it, it typically takes eight hours round trip. Um, but the last time I did it, there was easily 500 people in line to get nice. to the top, you Oof. know, and it was nice. not safe simply because of the sheer volume of people. Two years later, they issued a permitting system so that now they cut the, the number of people who are mm. able to do that mm. in half. You know, and from a safe standpoint, that makes it um, more accessible for more people to do it in a safe manner. Yeah. But sadly, though, it also limits the number of people who can make the, the hike because you've got to get a permit. Sure. <laughs> you know, and, and the, the permitting process, I mean, yeah. it's a free permit, which is great, or, or a very nominal cost. Um, but if you show up at the park on a Wednesday and all the, the permits are sold out for Wednesday, you, you're going to have to come back, <laughs> you yeah. know. Exactly, which There's is nothing which is good, but it's also challenging at the same time. And so, I think that we really need to make sure that we balance mm. both access and safety and environmental conservation. Mm. I guess it's like you know we were saying before. There's 62 different parks. There's so many different right. options for different things to do, and it's um, it's not about everyone going to Yosemite or the or the Grand Canyon or the famous parks but kind of like looking at some of those underappreciated ones or ones that might be close to your own backyard as well right i'm hoping that's what the book will do i'm hoping people will enjoy flicking through the book and finding parks they didn't know were there and stories they didn't know were there and that will spark curiosity Mm. and they'll go and explore these new places here's hoping cool with that we're going to move on to the the next section which is the present So now we're discussing the present and how the events of 2020 have affected national parks. For context, we're recording this in September and the US is still experiencing high levels of coronavirus cases and locations on the West Coast are experiencing the devastating impact of wildfires. So coronavirus first came to the USA in February and March. What do you both remember from that time? I remember then thinking that it wasn't going to last until the summer. Mm. Mm. You know, I really thought that we would lock it down and we would be inconvenienced for a month. Yeah. And we would, I mean, I, I don't think that we would have come up with a, a vaccine or anything like that, but I really thought that we could have collectively gotten together and decided that, you know, we're going to look out for one another. We're going to quarantine. We're going to lock everything down. 
and within 30 days, everything would be cool, yeah. you know, but mm. unfortunately that's not what happened, <laughs> you know, and, and now the United States is, is the epicenter for this virus worldwide. And sadly, a lot of it has to do with people going about their lives as if nothing had changed. Yeah. And I mm. think the reality is that quite a few things had changed. And sadly, it it's this ironic thing where the outdoors is probably the safest place you can be, mm. you know, relative mm. to being able to social distance, the um, the fact that there's a, a, a broader dispersal radius yeah. when it comes to um, you know, the communication of this disease. And, and here in Wisconsin, there was a report just this morning that indicated that um, our park visitation is infinitely higher than it's ever been before because of that. So mm-hmm. oddly mm-hmm. enough, despite the fact that this has been such a horrible thing, the parks have actually been a place where uh, people could have a positive, safe experience. The problem is high rates of congregation and the parks and as mm-hmm. well as the Sierra Club were actually trying to prevent people or at least discourage people from going into the parks you know, at the risk of you know having those places be major points of contact. And it's probably true in the visitor centers. It's probably true in many of the enclosed exhibits. Mm. So mm. The, the question ultimately is how do we go about properly managing both in a way that allows people to, to access the parks in a meaningful way? Mm. Stephanie, what did you think? Yeah, uh, such a question. Um, you know, COVID, I think the first case was late January in my hometown of Kirkland, which is a suburb of Seattle. Um, so I, I really, um, immediately was aware of it because it was happening in my hometown community. And, um, you know, February was just so completely surreal that, I, I was just devouring the news more than yeah. thinking about mm. the national parks or going anywhere. You know, I was thinking more on a, how am I going to manage my tomorrow yes. rather than how am I going to travel? So truthfully, it just stayed out of, out of my mind for a few months while I watched the world unfold around me and just tried to do the best I could in, in life, you know, as time marched on and, the months, you know, weeks became months and more and more time inside. I finally couldn't take it anymore. And I said, we need to get into nature. Yeah. <laughs> so we did actually there. I've been to a few national parks um, in the last few months. And it's been interesting to see how well they're handling the management of uh, visitors to the parks. Um, mm-hmm. For example, we went kind of randomly to Dinosaur National Monument, which is a national park unit. It's on yeah. the Colorado, Utah, Northern line. And mm-hmm. they, you know, we only went inside one large visitor center, which is actually a dinosaur quarry. But they were very good about keeping people separate um, from one another and pacing out the bus trams to various uh, exhibits and locations. But so what I saw there um, is really the only thing I've seen that I can comment on with how the National Park Service is handling the situation because the other adventures that we took were completely socially distanced in backcountry, no mm-hmm. people for five days. Um, so that is kind of the travel we're looking at right now to try to stay safe as possible. Yeah, because I guess in, in the US you've got kind of obviously people aren't able to travel outside of the US right now, but also 
you know, national parks are your kind of your places to get away from mm. everything, right? And your places, I guess, in a when when a disease wants you to get away from people, it's a place to get away from people too. But have all the national parks like kind of been open during this time? Like, have they uh, or have some of the did some of them close down while they worked out what they wanted to do? Yosemite just closed due to forest fires. Course. Right. Oh, really? And Yosemite. Actually, I think Yosemite is a really good example. I know that several of my colleagues were working remotely. You know that were typically on duty mm-hmm. stations mm-hmm. in Yosemite, and I think that that's probably true of most national parks around the country. The parks themselves, I think maybe the entry gates were open, but um, facilities like restrooms and campsites were closed. Sure. Yeah. You know. Um, and definitely visitor centers and information centers and all of the administrative offices were closed. You know, and so the backcountry areas, though, were still relatively accessible, you know, um, and I guess it really just depends on whether or not the roads were open. You know, and it was, you know, yeah. especially in a, in, a, in a place like Yellowstone, Yosemite, Grand Canyon, where there are clearly defined mm. gates, you know, clearly defined limits of access. I think many of those that require human interaction were indeed closed. But again, the backcountry mm-hmm. areas, if you could accept, access them um, without services, you know, you could. You know, and I mm-hmm. think that that's probably true of, of yeah. most areas. But if you get into a predicament of any kind, like for a while they were cautioning right. against it uh, just because they don't want to be using those emergency service technicians for you falling down a cliff rather than the person mm-hmm. who's... Uh, needs oxygen. Or exactly. That, that was definitely, and that, and that was actually true. I and mean, I, I have to assume this is true in Washington because you know, here in Wisconsin, I, like our cycling group, for example, was, I mean, we literally stopped taking rides, not because of our risk of c- transmitting COVID, but the possibility of being in an accident and requiring emergency services that would be, pu- you know, that would yes, ultimately put uh, first responders at risk but also to deplete those yeah. first responder resources in hospitals and a variety of other things. So that was a big part of the, of the consideration. It wasn't necessarily yeah. exposure to the virus, but the depletion of medical services. James, have you kind of then turned to nature? You mentioned cycling. Have you been turning to your national parks for some kind of, you know, a refuge from sort of quarantining or, or sort of the, all the, the relentless news about coronavirus? Late in the summer. You know, I, I mentioned that uh, we took a trip to mm. the Apostle Islands, and that was actually a pretty interesting trip because we created what I'm now calling an escape pod, mm. where it was basically a group of six friends who uh, committed to getting negative coronavirus tests, right. mm. quarantining ourselves, um, and then we got together and then we put ourselves on a boat for five right. days. <laughs> you know, and so, and from the boat, we were actually able to prepare meals Great. and, um, you know, play board games and drink lots of alcohol yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and, and then pull into port, you know, to these um, small remote islands in this ar- archipelago on Lake Superior, that's part of a national park unit, yeah. you know, and so we were actually able to create a, a safe space for ourselves. And so inspired by that, you know, just two weekends ago, um, I put together another escape pod. And um, in specifically working with a project um, that I called the uh, Black Men's Northwoods Retreat, 
where um, and that that's actually something that that kind of gets back to the work that I do when it comes to diversity and inclusion. African Americans in Wisconsin represent um, less than six percent of the population, um, but at last count, we represented twenty three percent of fatalities from the coronavirus. Goodness, you know, so we have a, oh, a, wow. a profound. A disproportionate impact in terms of our negative health outcomes for a variety of different things. And so um, working with a, a group that works specifically with Black men's health, we put together a small group of fathers and their sons, and we took them to mm. the Ice Age National Scenic Hiking Trail, which is a unit wow. of the National Park Service. We um, found a block of cabins that um, had um, keyless entry you know, without a um, a lobby, a hotel lobby, so we minimized contact. Yeah. We prepared all of our meals in a central location. We wore masks. We used hand sanitizer, and we had a nice eight mile hike in the rain through <laughs> a a national a national scenic hiking trail. Yeah. You know, and the great thing about it was that they were so happy to be outside yeah, that rain was the last thing that they were concerned about. In fact. You know, I was kind of apprehensive as to whether or not they would want to go because, I mean, rain was in the forecast all week and I thought the whole trip was going to get canceled. And not only did we go, but, you know, I'm kind of looking, well, we've got a a window of opportunity here, but it's going to start raining in about two hours. Next thing I know, they're going, no, let's go. We got to (laughs) go. And had a fabulous trip and um, they had a fabulous experience. And the goal now ultimately is to get them to go back in their communities and to use nature that's near their homes to be more accessible to the outdoors. And the great thing about the Ice Age National Scenic Hiking Trail is not unlike the the Pacific Crest Trail in, in the on the West Coast that Stephanie you're probably familiar with, the Appalachian Trail on the East Coast, mm-hmm. the Continental Divide Trail. Um, as one of eleven National Scenic Hiking Trails units of the National Park Service, it actually represents a hundred and um, uh, one thousand two hundred miles wow. of trail in the state of Wisconsin many of which are very accessible to urban areas. Mm. You know, like, like, so the nearest jumping off point from where I'm standing right now is less than six miles from my house. Gosh. You know, and so from that point of access, I could literally walk the length of the entire state on a hiking trail. And that hiking trail is becoming more and more popular with the through trekking crowd because they've done the Appalachian Trail, Pat Crest Trail, Continental Divide is newly finished, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. But it is, you bring up a really good point, or it's making me think about the fact that a lot of the time people wind up in a national park and have no idea. And just because (laughs) it's not one of these 62 national parks doesn't mean it's not one of the 400 and something national park units that like Dinosaur National Monument I mentioned um, is every bit as remarkable as some of the you know, top tier national parks. So I think like having people understand that, not having them understand it, but it it just surprises me that so many people experience them and can never, like maybe don't even know that they have. Yeah, that they've made a connection to that whole movement, even if they've just been doing a hike somewhere, somewhere close to them or, yeah. Right. Or even they're driving on the freeway and they marvel at something yeah. miraculous from afar, but and they have no idea what it is. But look at that beautiful mountain, and it happens to be like a really important mountain. 
Right. Well, you know, and that's especially true. I mean, in hiking trails in particular, and I'm, I've really become enamored of them because they're very accessible to many of the places that we overlook. Like, for example, in Atlanta, Georgia, you know, one of the most densely populated urban places in the country that is predominantly African-American has the Chattahoochee um, uh, National uh, Scenic River Byway, I think it's, it's what it's called. But it's literally hundreds of thousands of people drive past it every day. Yeah. And probably don't even know that it's there. Yeah. And the most visited national park is Great Smoky Mountains in North Carolina, Tennessee. And it is only the most visited because it has a very important scenic byway that goes through it. But people use it for transit. So people work across the state lines. <laughs> and that is why it's the most visited, I think. Mm-hmm. But maybe... Wow. I mean, and that, that makes perfect sense. I mean, because you... You visit what you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and unless there's a good reason for you not to go someplace, why wouldn't you? Yeah. So I guess with like kind of all of that taken into into hand, would you say this year is kind of a year for like, uh, you know, provided people can do it safely, provided they can do it, uh, you know, in places as and when they feel comfortable and, and, you know, making sure that everything's available, like people are actually able to explore around their local areas, explore their own local national park stories, as well as those around the country, maybe at a later date. Yeah. Yeah. The time is now. Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to say, um, and encourage people to have a look at your surroundings, you know, where you live, pull up a map, a Google map on your phone, however you do it. And just type in national parks and see what comes up. You're not just going to see Mount Rainier on the outskirts of Seattle. Mm. You're going to see 20 or 30 different opportunities of natural areas that you can go visit. And I I really believe that's true for every state. Every state in our country has some marvelous piece of nature in it and around it. And I think it's real easy to find out where to go if you just do a simple search on your mobile device. Yeah. So then let's say that the four of us formed one of James' escape pods. And James and I (laughs) came over to the US, we quarantined, and then the four of us quarantined together. And then we were all going to go on an adventure to a national park. This is a big question, but where would the four of us go? Oh wow! Go, James. <laughs> I, I that's a big question. Well, I, I got to take my my personally right. I I did a, a a quick search just in my own personal history. The only place, the only state in the United States that I haven't spent the night mm. is Maine. Okay. And I'm dying to go to Acadia National Park. Yeah, yeah. So if you're going to make me pick of all the parks that we could go to, it'll be it'll need to be the one that I haven't been to. Um, and I would love, love to go to Acadia National Park because I've heard so many great things about it. So Great. Um, well, I have no idea where we'd fly into, but uh, we can make it happen. We'll, we'll sort it out. Stephanie, yeah, yeah, what's yeah. your plan for the four of us? Wow, you stumped me. <laughs> I'm waiting with bated breath here. This is <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah, really it's like, like picking your is, favorite kid. This is a, but see, I would, a, I would ask you 20 questions. Mm. What do you what do you like to do? Do you like to hike? Do you want to see mm. wildlife? Do you care about photography? Are you into history? Mm. Do you want to see a like cultural impact of a people? Like what are you into? And then I could probably answer better. How about what's your favorite, Stephanie? What's your do you have like a, a, a particularly favorite national park? Definitely like picking a kid. 
Um, (laughs) So the way I kind of qualify that question, and I'm asked that question often, um, is that there are the parks that I want to know more deeply, the ones that haunt me a little bit, or that I dream about, or um, even though I've been there, you know, once or twice or uh, more than that, I want to go back to. And, you know, the Alaska parks, all eight of them are, um, I mean... Alaska is a very, very special place. You travel so much of it by bush plane and float plane, and it's a roadless geography, and you are just struck by how rugged and big Mm. it is and how small you are. And um, in terms of kind of getting away from it all and perspective, that that place is one that um, I just love going there as often as I can and the wildlife and hiking and backcountry is all incredible there. Um, also, I want to give a shout out to Acadia Lake James. That's a real <laughs> special park. Um, and I mean, I could just go on because I am really passionate about each of them in a different way. Like they all impressed me. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Unfortunately, when discussing the future of the national parks with James and Stephanie, uh, we ran into a bit of technical trouble, as happens to um, all good podcasts. Uh, Not to be deterred, we sent over a few questions and they replied with these brilliant answers. Firstly, we asked both of them, what are their own personal hopes for the future of the national parks? Well, of course, I'd love to see more national parks to be established, um, opening up more opportunities for conservation, for learning, and of course, for exploration, which is my favorite reason to go into the parks. Um, For the parks that are already established, continued preservation and new research projects to be stood up. And in general, I just love to see the protected lands continue to grow in our country. 
Um, seeing as the national parks provide us with so much intrinsic value, it'd be great to see higher wages made available for National Park Service employees and greater funding to the parks themselves. Uh, there's a huge backlog for funding for the parks that's needed for repair work to infrastructure. I think about 12 billion US dollars. Um, the Great American Outdoors Act was passed by Congress this year, which will cover a little less than half of that. I'd love to see all of the necessary funding be provided though, which will of course take some time, but will allow for all of the amazing work that has already gone into building our national parks uh, survive so that they can remain for future generations to enjoy. And ultimately, my wish is that Americans and the world continue to appreciate and protect the beauty of our public lands. Well, personally, what I really hope is going to come of our national parks is that we indeed make them engaging and welcoming places for everyone. Now, currently, I think that it's safe to say that our parks are indeed open. The question is whether or not everyone is made to feel welcome. And I think part of where that whole understanding of you know who's welcome and who is being made to feel like they belong in our national parks, a big part of that kind of, I think, focuses in directly on interpretation, and that means the stories that we tell. And that's why I was really glad with this particular book that I was able to contribute to, we were able to tell the story of a wide, broad cross-section of the history of the people who were part of our national parks from the very beginning. And I'm really hoping that the stories that I've been able to tell and the stories that other people are able to tell will be a big part of how we make our national parks open and engaging and accessible to everyone for generations yet to come. Our next question was, how was your own experience working on USA National Parks Lands of Wonder? Well, I got to tell you that personally, I can't tell you how happy I was to even be asked to be included in this story and this book. I loved working with our editors. I really loved working with the folks in photography acquisition much of my personal experience was literally just writing about the things that I have a great deal of passion for. And I just love the fact that these incredible editors were able to give me the platform to be able to tell these really important stories. And uh, I couldn't be happier with how things turned out. And I'm just glad that the book is out there and that people will read it and hopefully they will enjoy what we have to share. I had the best time. I started working on the book almost exactly three years after our project concluded in January of 2017. Uh, not only did writing Lands of Wonder or contributing to it uh, bring back so many wonderful memories of my own experience in the parks, but it did so with the benefit of retrospective. Um, I recall it in such a different way than I did when I was writing our own book in 2017. Accessing memories from years past with some distance from them helped me to write in a different way and provide new and unique insights and just remember things that I had completely forgotten about. And it was just a wonderful trip down memory lane as I went through my files and my notes and my pictures and videos. And I, I got swept up in it quite a bit, but it was a wonderful experience. And um, I'm just so excited about this book and that I was a part of it. And we also asked Stephanie to tell us a little bit about working on her children's book, uh, The National Parks, which she also did with DK. You have to write an entirely different way for children than you do for adults. I think that goes without saying. And you have to think about those topics with the lens of a child. 
Kids love dinosaurs and fossils, animals, rock art, ranger activities, park stories. Um, I used a lot of adjectives, which I tend to refrain from when writing informational books and materials for adults. And I used a lot of metaphors to help illustrate different ideas through words and try to make some connections that they would understand. Um, I learned a lot from the editing process and from the writers at DK. Uh, at the end, I was imagining reading this book to a child, wondering what might make his or her eyebrows raise, what might make them smile or laugh or gasp or just make a connection. Um, it's really fun to write for a planet full of children whom you may never meet. Um, you just hope that you'll teach them something new and inspire them in some way. It was such a wonderful experience, and I am super excited to write more children's books if the opportunity arises. So um, just once again, uh, a huge thank you to James and Stephanie for appearing with us. Um it's a big shame that we had we, we lost those answers in the end but um oh i know but we were having such a great chat as well we really were but it's uh, it, it's fascinating to hear both of them talk about the parks and yeah. you know their legacy and heritage and especially for us over here like really getting a sense of how important these parks are in in, in american life and really wanting to go yeah desperately desperately wanting to go absolutely yeah so let's uh let's make those plans in the future <laughs> <laughs> To get closer to the US National Parks, our new book, USA National Parks Lands of Wonder, is now available. The book is packed with beautiful photography and inspiring ideas for your next adventure, whether you want to be alone over the vast and haunting wilderness of Alaska's Denali Park, or get up close to the teeming tropical wildlife of Florida's Everglades. All 62 parks are covered, showcasing what makes each one unique with maps, facts and figures, things to do, and when and where to experience it at its best. Find it in all good bookstores or via the link in our episode description. So uh, once again, a massive, huge thank you to uh, to James and Stephanie. Uh, we hope to speak to you guys again soon. And um, in the meantime, we'll see you for another edition of Where to Go in two weeks' time, where we'll be discussing Unforgettable Journeys, another yes. amazing another new book, book from DK. Yes. Um, uh, uh, with uh, Shafik Medji and uh, with uh, our friend project editor uh, Becky Flynn so yeah looking forward to that a lot and we'll see you all really soon see you then Where to Go was produced by the team at DK Witness and presented by James Atkinson and Lucy Richards for more information about DK Witness follow us on social media at DK Witness or visit dk.com forward slash eyewitness
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.